Well, the cat's out of the bag. I guess you ladies see your roses up front. Instead of surprising you when you walk through the doors and you're handed a rose as you go out, we decided they were so beautiful that we would let you see them throughout the service. Uh, but do bear note of this. When I depart after the benediction, I'm going to grab one of these vases. I'm going to go back there, and some of these young people are going to go back there with me and help pass out roses. Pastor Jim's going to stay up here, and some of these young folks will help him pass out roses. And so whether you go out the, the front or the back, you better get a rose. Now those roses are for all ladies. All ladies because you are all in some way, some form, some fashion, mothers. You might not be a biological mother, you might not be an adoptive mother, but if you're here and if you have any input in the lives of children, you're a spiritual mother and we want to honor that. So make sure you leave this place with at least one rose, okay? Let's talk about not roses, let's talk about English monarchs. You think, oh boy, this is going to be fun. English monarchs. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a geek in that regard. Who's the most famous English monarch of all time? The present Queen Elizabeth? Well, she certainly has reigned for a long time. Queen Victoria? Well, she had, even had an era named after her. And all I can think of is uh, stiff, starched collars. Was it King George of the American Revolution fame? Well, here we are in the United States. Thank you very much, King George. Was it William of Orange, who we really know as the one half of the duo William and Mary? William and Mary. Well, you know, England and even the United States uh, are not predominantly Roman Catholic countries because of William. Pretty important guy. Was it the first Queen Elizabeth? And I want to say yes because she's one of my favorites. I mean, her, her reign was an amazing reign, a lengthy reign. Uh, but I can't say that. Well, was it her infamous father, Henry VIII, and his not-so-merry wives? Or was it an earlier Henry, maybe Henry IV or some other? As important as all these were, if we answer the question with another question, which famous English monarch has had the most influence throughout the world since his reign, the answer becomes clear. King James. King James of the King James Bible. King James, a Scot, who upon the death of his cousin Elizabeth took the throne. King James, when he took the throne, with a stroke of political genius, he took feuding Puritans and high church Anglicans and put them in their place and then put them to work on producing what has become the most famous English translation of the Bible. Just, just, just ask yourself. Just, just Take a venture, a guess. How many English-speaking households today would you find a copy of the King James Bible? How many hotel rooms? His impact was far-reaching. 
That said, let me also tell you, I don't like him. I just don't like him. And I don't like King James for various reasons. But here's one, illustrated by a commentator, and it's one of the reasons I don't like him. It's his pride. James VI of Scotland became, again, James I of England following the death of Queen Elizabeth. This king was notoriously rude when attending worship services. On one occasion, he was seated in a Scottish church, and the pastor was Robert Bruce, famous Scottish minister, fantastic Scottish minister. And Robert Bruce was preaching, and James was there in his gallery with his courtiers. And when Bruce began to preach, guess what James did? He did what he oftentimes did do. He began to talk. He began to have conversation with his courtiers as Bruce is preaching. Bruce catches that and he just stops and pauses and looks. And the king got silent. And then Bruce started preaching again. And guess what King James started to do again? Yeah, 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 yeah. He started talking. Bruce stopped again. Stared him down. Started back to preaching. And guess what King James did? Yak, 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 yak. Finally, that was it. Strike three. Robert Bruce then stopped, looked directly at the king, and said the following. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest kings that when the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring now in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all petty kings of the earth to be silent. Now that's a bold preacher. And he was silent. As one commentator continues, though, kings, even those who have the most famous Bible translation named after them, can easily forget that they are subjects. They are subjects under the king of kings. They easily forget that there is one to whom they will have to bend the knee. There is one to whom they will have to give an account. And they so easily forget that. And they so easily can ignore his word. They can ignore the king's decree. Now some do it rudely. Some do it obnoxiously. Some do it crudely like King James. Others do it subtly. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Some ignore the king's decree subtly. 1 Samuel Chapter 13. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Saul lived, and, and by the way, and I'll, I'll speak to this later. This first verse is garbled, I might say. And, and I, again, I'll speak to it in a, in a bit. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba 
And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered a fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And Saul said, Bring, bring, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward uh, Oprah to the land of Shual. And another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves short of spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who was Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. The word of God for the people of God. Be Kings can behave badly. And I see a king behaving badly in at least two ways here in this text. Two ways in which King Saul acts badly. And really, I think 
most likely he's acting badly through proxy, through somebody else, through another. The first is acting badly by omission. That is, by not doing what he should do. By allowing another to do what he should do. The second is by acting uh, by badly by commission, by what he did do, or what he likely did through another. Let's look at each of these. First of all, he acted badly by omission. And really, before I can even get there, I do have to say a word about uh, verse 1. Verse 1 is one of those rare times in the Old Testament where the original Hebrew, it looks mangled. It looks like it's missing some things. And that has left translators to have to try to figure things out. And that's the reason why if you compare the ESV to the NIV to the NASB to the King James, etc. It's, it's going to look a little different. This is, this is what's going on. In the book of Samuel, in the book of Kings, we oftentimes have, when we're talking about a new king, we're given what's known as a regnal resume, a resume of the king. And that resume typically includes two things. It includes how old the king is and how long he's reigned. Okay? And so that's what we would be anticipating here at the beginning of chapter 13. We're, ta- we're, we're told about Saul, but uh, it just the numbers seem like they're missing or, 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 or garbled, we might say. Um, so again, there's been some guesswork. And, and, and even the, the number 2 that's tra- is translated as 2, it's misspelled in, in, in the Hebrew. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on. It might not be clear, but verses 2 through 7 are clear. They are clear. War is brewing. And this shouldn't surprise us because why was God raising up Saul to be a king in the first place? To deliver his people from the Philistines. From the Philistines. And he's already led them against the Ammonites in, in, in victory, right? We've seen him do that. Well, Saul here drafts his army, okay? He drafts his army, then he divides the forces between himself and his son, Jonathan. And then Jonathan goes and attacks the garrison of the Philistines. And then, once that happens, that's just like kicking the hornet's nest. And the Philistines gather a huge army, right? A huge army. And in the sight or in in the acknowledgement of that army... Israel cringes in fear. A larger army is necessary. But in those verses, it's verse 6 that fascinates me. Verse 6. Jonathan, notice, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. I've got two questions when I read that. First question, why was it then? Why did he attack then and not later? That's a question that I'm going to kind of reserve for the next section of the text. The second question I've got is, why was it Jonathan and not Saul? Why Jonathan and not Saul? Now, I don't want to be overly speculative, and I've got to be somewhat tentative here. But there have been other hints earlier on in preceding chapters that Saul was a bit hesitant 
to take up this job of defeating the Philistines, of taking it to the Philistines. He was a bit hesitant. Could it be that Jonathan's just impetuous and trigger-happy? You know, you can have those sorts of guys, right? I just got to go, got to go to war. Is, is it that? Possibly. But if you continue in the book of Samuel and as you read about this Jonathan, I, I'm struck that this Jonathan is a very wise, level-headed, caring, good man, good young man. So I'm not quite sure he's trigger-happy. Well, maybe instead, Jonathan is looking around and he, he commits this act, though at the wrong time, because his dad's not. Maybe he's acting at the wrong time, but because his dad's not. Maybe he thinks, I've got to do what dad's not doing. Now, what does that tell us, if that's the answer? Well, it tells us either dad's hesitant not to do what he's supposed to do, or at least dad hasn't told Jonathan, Jonathan... I am called of God to defeat the Philistines. But we're going to wait for the timing of the Lord. Trust me. So either he's shirking his responsibility to attack, or he's shirking his responsibility to lead his son well. He is acting badly by omission. Jonathan acts. The Philistines are enraged. And now we've got this huge army ready to attack Israel. And that leads us to see Saul acting badly by commission, by doing things. And, and again, likely doing things through another. Right? What had he been told back in chapter 10? Chapter 10, verse 8. Samuel had told Saul these words. Go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, there was a set time. Saul should wait for Samuel. And more importantly, he was to wait for Samuel because you see Samuel would be coming to do these sacrifices, but something else. Samuel would be bringing what? God's word of direction to Saul. Samuel would be bringing the battle plans. Samuel would be bringing God's decrees for Saul. Samuel would be bringing the word of the Lord. And yet what happens? The news of the Philistine army sends folks into panic. And Saul begins losing men. They're deserting him left and right. He, as any commander would do, is getting antsy. And you can just, just see him on that seventh day. He's, he's tapping his fingers. He's pacing back and forth. He's looking at the horizon, that road, this road, that road, this road, looking, waiting, looking and seeing the sun setting lower and lower and lower and getting lower in the sky. 
And at that moment, he focuses on what Samuel said to him, but really only the first part. Go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. And he's thinking, what is needed for victory over the Philistines? And Saul's answer is ritual sacrifices. Sacrifices being made. One commentator puts it this way. For Saul, sacrificial rituals were essential. But prophetic direction was dispensable. Sacrificial ritual was essential. Prophetic direction was dispensable. Sacrifices made unto the Lord by human being essential. The word of the living God to human beings dispensable. And so he made or more than likely directed a Levitical priest to make for him those sacrifices. What he did, what he had done for him, to him, was essential. What God would say to him, dispensable, unessential. Do you see how sinful that was? And by the way, on what day did Samuel arrive? The seventh day. Saul had just not waited long enough. And when God's Word becomes dispensable, what happens to God's Word? Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Notice the first part of verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. He left. He left. And when Samuel left, what had left? The Word of God. And that reminds me of the scary words of the prophet Amos. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. When the word of God becomes dispensable, the word of God leaves. And when Samuel left... The Word left. And when the Word left, Saul is left directionless, wordless, and facing a huge enemy. And he's got 600 men and they got two swords. Might I suggest things look bleak? 
And the rest of the chapter drives that bleakness, that hopelessness. It, it just drives it, doesn't it? Drives it home. When God's Word becomes dispensable in our lives, what are we left with? Our own puny strength. And is our own puny strength sufficient to face the foes that are constantly arrayed against us? If you had eyes to see the forces that are arrayed against you constantly, whether it be your own flesh, whether it be the world, or whether it be Satan and his forces, those forces arrayed against you are tremendous. And if you're left to your own strength, you are doomed. Samuel rose and went from Gilgal. Sins of omission. Do you commit those? Anybody else? Am I the only one? Sins of omission. You don't do all the things you should do. Sins of commission. You do those things that you shouldn't do. Trusting in what you can do rather than in what God says? Particularly when the chips are down. Oh, I better just pull, up, pull myself up and get to it. Does that sound in the least familiar? Now my purpose Sunday after Sunday is not to make you feel miserable. Well, yeah, it is partly. Make you feel miserable first. To make you feel hopeless first. Why? Because until you do, you will not trust in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When you think you can get yourself out of pickles and predicaments in your own strength, my purpose is, how shall I phrase this nicely? Punch you in the proverbial gut. Slap you in the proverbial face. Tell you, are you, this is, I've told you this before, uh, are you stupid? Are you? Are you like Saul? Is Saul so different from us? Different from us as individuals? Or even different from us uh, as churches? I, I am struck, um, Ralph, Davis made this comment in a footnote in his commentary and it, it struck home. He said, so many churches can do all kinds of amazing, wonderful things. All kinds of programs and activities and all kinds of stuff going on. And it's all good stuff, not necessarily bad stuff. And they can trust in all that that they do. And what may have left out the front door, back door. The solid, sound preaching and teaching of the Word of the living God. And when that's gone, what do you have? you got a tree with a rotten core. 
And what's going to happen when the winds come? One prayer I need each and every one of you praying all the time. Lord, please keep in the pulpit and keep in our teachers' seats those who love your word and seek to faithfully proclaim it. Because if you lose that, if we lose that, write Ichabod on this church. The glory has departed. Kings easily forget they are subjects. Subjects do too. And when we do, we're left to our own strength. And when we are, we are helpless. We are hopeless. Yet there is... Even in the hopelessness, there is hope when the hope is the King of Kings. When the hope is in the King of Kings who lived to do His Father's will, who waited for a word from the Lord, the living word, who put Himself under the written word to keep it Perfectly, never considering it dispensable. The living word, the king of kings, and the lion of the tribe of Judah, who roars in his gospel against all the Philistines that the world can amass against his people. The faithful king, who for the joy set before him, endured the agonies of the cross. Never shying away from doing battle at God's appointed time on that old rugged cross. And through that battle has begun this great war that will end in His second coming. And between that and the resurrection and the second coming, guess what He's doing? Defeating all His and all your enemies. Our circumstances may look bleak, but our King never will be. Our King will never be defeated. And our King needs to be heeded. His Word is not dispensable. We all proclaim to be Bible believers. We come here and we open up this Bible and we hear it on Sunday. But the question is, is that who we really are? Or is that dispensable? And I can just leave it for the rest of the week. It has no impact. You tell me. Too often Lee sets this aside. Your pastor sets this aside. Or even in the busyness of reading it, I'm reading it for sermons. I'm reading it to do my job. Brothers and sisters, I'll admit to you, I don't love this Bible as I should. I don't value this Bible as I should. I don't see this as absolutely essential for my every breath. 
And my suspicion is I'm not the only one here. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, open our eyes to our own dullness. Open our eyes to our trusting in ourselves. Open our eyes to see the beauty of your word. Open our eyes and open our ears that we might receive this word and know that we have a king who's ruling over and is defeating and will defeat every single foe. Help us to not trust in our own actions, but to trust in you and to trust in your word. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.